at the intersection of ideas and action. This is Launch to Soundbites, bringing innovative insights from around the world directly to you. I'm Jaina Kim, Longitude Fellow and Law Student from the University of Ottawa. You're just in time to embark on the fourth series of Longitudes of Imagination with some of the most incredible masterminds behind the NASA Gateway program. The Gateway is building a space station that provides vital support for long-term human presence on the moon and as a station point for future deep space exploration, such as sending the first astronauts to Mars. Keep launching in to this episode for conversation highlights with Emma Lanehart, the Program Planning and Control Manager for NASA's Gateway Program, and her expert insight on how pursuing outer space missions beyond our planet has actually unified in many ways Humanity on Earth. My name is Emma Lanehart. I work at the NASA Johnson Space Center on the Gateway Program, which will be a small human-tended space station in orbit around the moon. My job uh, is basically the business operations manager of the program. I directly support our program manager, Dan Hartman and provide all of the business services across the program that kind of keep the trains on the tracks. Everything that's not engineering or developing the systems necessary for spaceflight kind of falls into my shop. And uh, technically my title is Program Planning and Control Manager. Could you summarize, I know uh, you just summarized the Gateway Project, but the Gateway Project is also part of a bigger project, the Artemis Project. Would you mind summarizing that in a couple sentences for our audience? Absolutely. So the Artemis uh, campaign is an initiative of NASA to return to the moon, to land the first woman and the first person of color on the moon, and also to establish all of the capabilities that we need to explore the moon and set us up for further exploration beyond. Artemis is in Greek mythology, the twin sister of Apollo. So it seemed uh, very poetic and a great name for our return to the moon in this generation. Before I dive a bit into the details of what you do on a day-to-day basis, could you just explain to us what the significance of space exploration is and how helpful that space research and everything that happens out in space can actually be transferred down to help the people down on Earth? Absolutely. So space is and has always been inspirational across the world and particularly with everything that NASA has been doing over the past 20 plus years in low earth orbit, it symbolizes the way humanity can come together with the international partnerships that we've established on the International Space Station. So it in- encourages and inspires students around the world to pursue STEM degrees, science, technology, engineering, and, and math, and, uh, and also expands our human reach and our, our economic sphere of influence outside of the earth. So that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about Gateway. I see it as some of those first steps towards kind of a, a Star Trek future or what you can envision in the, sh- the TV show, The Expanse. I love that you talked about kind of, well, I know you talked about the science fiction. I think it was a TV series, yeah, but also kind of your expanse within NASA. So uh, your journey with NASA has been really incredible. I believe you interned there during your studies and then later on in your career, you quickly advanced into your role today. Were there any integral or memorable moments that really got you to the position, notably one of leadership, a woman in leadership, which, you know, we're still um, fighting to see on a more equal platform, especially in, in 
STEM and in STEAM. If there were any really advice that you could share with all of our listeners, regardless of gender, and one memorable moment. So yeah, let me start a little bit with my story. So I have always been a space nerd. I've always loved space. And I originally thought that I wanted to study astronomy. But honestly, the math for me was very challenging. And I ended up unfortunately believing that I was just bad at it. And I I changed my field of study. I still maintained a minor in astronomy when I was an undergrad, but I majored in politics. And that combination of politics and astronomy really set me up well for a space policy degree, which is what I, I got my master's in. And then I was able to go to the International Space University, where I learned even more about the the international space community and and what it means to be a a truly international interdisciplinary work in our space fields. I ended up, after those two programs of study, as a consultant to NASA, to the Air Force, to DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the sci-fi branch of, of the Department of Defense in the United States and also consulting to private industry. I then ended up becoming a direct employee of the government, a civil servant at NASA headquarters. And I was there for about 10 years working on strategic planning and also the budget of NASA. When I was at NASA headquarters, I had felt this whole time that I I could contribute to the mission, but you know, when I introduce myself to people, I often say, yes, hi, I'm Emma, I work at NASA, but I'm not an astronaut, I'm not a rocket scientist, I'm not an engineer. So you're almost introducing yourself in the negative, right? My contributions really were important. And one of my key memories, which is what you asked me for, was, uh, you know, I, I was doing some work implementing a law at, uh, at NASA, which wasn't the sexiest or most fun thing to do. It's called the Government Performance Results Act Modernization Act, GAPRAMA. And I was going through the results of our implementation of a a strategic assessment of all of our objectives at the agency. And our associate administrator at the time, and I actually presented that work to the White House, he pulled out of his pocket a slide that I had prepared for him with the results of the analysis. And I looked over at him in the meeting and he had handwritten notes all over it, which were very apparently written over uh, multiple periods of time and useful for him as a cheat sheet. This felt like something that we were doing in DC to just take care of it and let real people do the real work out there. But here is the associate administrator of NASA really using this work to understand the work of the agency and to communicate our work to the White House. That was such a cool moment for me. And I ended up talking to him about that a little bit later on. And he said, you know, Emma, you have to understand that essentially what you are doing when you are implementing policies, when you're working on budget or the PP and C work of the agency really is systems engineering in another vein. Mm -hmm. And that was a transformational moment for me and, and the way I think about my work today. I love that. I I can really resonate with that because prior to my law degree, I majored in classical flute performance. And as a musician, I knew that I always wanted to do something that created social impact and social change as I'm a child of immigrants where, you know, my parents really sacrificed a lot and I saw the Canadian society really embrace us and help us integrate. And so I knew I wanted to give back, but as a musician, I kind of felt confined to the stage and it felt like a one-sided relationship with my audience. And so when I looked around, 
around to see like what else I could share. Uh, maybe that also had kind of a performance aspect. I naturally inclined towards law. And so I, I really see the parallel there where we're able to really help with something that we're passionate about, but it may not be what people necessarily think what artists do or what NASA does. And I, right. I think, which is a great segue, I know that you really helped in the program's implementation and approach under agency space flight policies. And that was something that stood out to me as a law student. Could I ask you for a brief explanation on it and kind of the importance of taking policy into consideration when doing really big missions, uh, especially something such as long-term space exploration? Absolutely. So yes, that in particular is a document at NASA called NPR 7120.5. NPR stands for NASA Procedural Requirements. And this book can be thought of as the Bible at NASA for how you uh, implement spaceflight programs and projects, uh, particularly human spaceflight programs and projects at NASA. One of the interesting things about my job is that you know we are building a next generation space station right the gateway is a successor in a way it will be much smaller than the international space station but leverages a lot of the work and processes and program implementation that we've done on the international space station but the international space station predated this NPR 7120.5. So when that program was initially established, they did not have to comply or really even think about these higher level NASA procedures. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous in a way because they, they didn't have to go through the thing that we did. But uh, you know, that was the, the interesting thing about standing up Gateway as a program was, okay, now we have to think about a large program with lots of, of pieces and individual projects underneath it that are tightly coupled that will be developed and deployed incrementally, you know, one at a time over time. And how does that type of a, of a program fit within a, a NASA procedural requirement that is in many ways written for individual missions? Wow. Uh, so that was uh, what we wrestled with. And, and I think we came up with some good maybe not ingenious, but effective and streamlining measures to implement those high-level policies and procedures for Gateway. So I know at the beginning, you kind of explained what you do, and I can't remember if it was in this interview or another one, you kind of explained that your role was kind of like the CFO and the COO. So I also know that the Gateway Project is an international project. Do you work with uh, international partners? If so, have you faced differing cultural or language barriers? And how do you unite such a diverse group? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, similar to the International Space Station program, yes, we are a multilateral program. We established memoranda of understanding with the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, the Space Agency of the Government of Japan. We established those at the end of calendar year 2020, but really our international partners have been part of our program from the beginning, even some of the very initial ideas of what a gateway could be. Mm -hmm. And today with the establishment of those MOUs and how we operate the program, the partners are uh, integral members of our program. So they are with us every step of the way in all of our program level boards, which are the meetings where we make technical and programmatic decisions. There have not been, in my experience, any 
cultural barriers to overcome. I think we are all coming into this understanding that we and our governments believe that this is an important mission to accomplish and something that we can do together with both international and commercial partners. But there have been some interesting logistical uh, issues to work out. You know, when you are working with centers, NASA centers all across the country, contractors all across the country, and partners all over the world, honestly, just setting up meetings with appropriate time zones <laughs> and understanding what happens when daylight savings uh, occurs in the United States, for example, one of, one of those interesting logistical challenges to overcome and just something you always have to have in the forefront of your mind, Th be thinking in multiple time zones all the time. Uh, the other one possibly of, of interest for you from a legal perspective is export control. So export control for us is definitely a challenge in the program because our, our international partners are, like I said, with us every step of the way. That means they are with us when we are having technical conversations all the time. So everything is an export and needs to be export controlled. Within the program, we are looking for efficiencies and ways that this won't bog us down too much so we can continue moving at an, an agile pace. But it is something that it just has to be accommodated so I know you mentioned an aggressive timeline, and I know that was uh, a big part, the push to get people on the moon by 2024. And I believe you also talked about somewhere else that you really had to change the architecture of how the team worked to meet this timeline. Does this mean that if you're working with fewer people, did this result in a heavier workload? And how do you balance something that's pressing and so important, but also not burning out so that you're able to deliver the finest quality of work right to the end? That is the exact question that's been on my mind uh, quite a bit, particularly during the pandemic. We are indeed a much smaller team than many traditional program and, and project sizes of teams at NASA. Within my own team, for example, we are pretty lean. And that means you have people wearing multiple hats, doing two or in some cases, three jobs. That may be the same type of job at the program level and the project level, or that may be entirely different jobs. Our export control lead for the program, for example, who works for me is also the resources and risk integrator for one of our control account managers, the systems engineering and integration office. So, you know, she is constantly overloaded and that's true for almost every member of, of our team. On the one hand, there are benefits there with so many people taking on critical roles, and not having too many cooks in the kitchen, we were able to move very quickly and drive to decisions quickly. But burnout is absolutely a concern. So right now it's all about trying to find the right amount of balance across the team and where do we really need to add resources to offload people before they get burned out. Mm -hmm. But it's a difficult thing, uh, honestly, even for myself, because you know, we pour our hearts and souls into these programs and projects because we believe in them so much. And it is easy to find yourself just continuing to work nights and weekends uh, because you want to accomplish this amazing thing. So you, you also have to, every individual is, is responsible for um, monitoring how they're doing and raising a hand when they need help. 
Do you think with the pandemic, you know, a lot of us had to quarantine oftentimes in our own rooms in periods of time we've never been confined to before. And I can't imagine that would be much more different than traveling on a spacecraft for six to nine months to get to Mars. Uh, Did the pandemic serve any helpful learning opportunities uh, for the people at NASA or maybe individually that really brought in like this extra layer of imagination that you could implement and make the Gateway Project better out of, you know, such an unfortunate global event? Absolutely. There there were some distinct benefits that, that we saw internal to the Gateway program. So I mentioned that we are a multi-center program. The program office resides at the Johnson Space Center. Our power and propulsion element is managed out of the Glenn Research Center in Ohio. Our deep space logistics project is managed out of the Kennedy Space Center in, in Florida. We have team members at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, for example. And we saw pretty quickly that When you move from a center of gravity of many of the program leadership members in a conference room at JSC face-to-face and all of the other center members on the phone uh, without video connectivity, that once we were in the, the pandemic environment and everybody was on equal footing virtually with cameras, we actually developed better relationships. Um, across the center teams. And you know, we we're all in the same virtual room as opposed to some of us being in the room and everyone else being on the phone. So now that we're moving back into a hybrid environment, it's going to be all about maintaining that frame of mind mm-hmm. for, for, you know, we want to maintain those connections that we built as a virtual team. And uh, I, I think that's going to be all about just keeping that forefront in our mind and pursuing information technology solutions that'll help us like just cameras and conference rooms. It sounds simple. It's something that we have not had previously at NASA really across the board and and we'll be pursuing that for our program. Yay. Yeah. Uh, something I know that you do on your free time is you're an advanced open water scuba diver. And our last longitude of imagination series was with the Schmidt Ocean Institute. And just kind of with this back and forth between ocean and space, I think us longitude fellows are learning that there is some sort of connection there. There's some sort of people who are interested in space often have an interest in the ocean. People who work at NASA's are open water scuba divers. Was there any particular reason that drew you to maybe this hobby? Do you think it helps you become a better a leader in the workplace that you have something that's not um, tying you down to space all day, every day? All day, every day. I am a little tied to space all day, every day, especially being uh, married to a fellow space nerd. But yes, there was a specific reason. So I, I have a pretty significant motion sickness issue. So I personally never had the thought in my head that I could be a scuba diver. My husband is an emergency physician by training, and he is someone who has always wanted to be an astronaut. So he pursued multiple things like becoming a private pilot, joining the Canadian military, and scuba diving in the pursuit of developing himself to be a better potential candidate to be an astronaut. When he started his scuba diving training, I decided to join him because we, we decided to try motion sickness medication that comes in the form of 
of a patch that you wear behind your ear. And luckily for me, that worked and I was able to, to complete the training. And it's now something that we try to do when we travel all over the world. And I, I very much love it. But more on a day-to-day basis, the, the thing that I find that grounds me and helps me in my day-to-day work and balancing in my life is exercise. Hmm. So running, spinning, weightlifting, yoga, I do a little bit of everything and try to do at least something every day. And that, that has been very helpful. Just being mindful of our time. I think I have two yeah. wrap-up questions. The first, I would like to start with, I almost think there was this myth, which I think is slowly being dispelled, that science was not a very creative field. It was very square and rigid and that maybe science and creativity, being imaginative in science did not mesh, but arguably I would say science is inherently creative. Someone would have imagined themselves flying out to the moon one day, which is what you guys at NASA made happen. And so could you speak to a little bit about the role of imagination in, in science? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not cut and dry at all. You know, the most important thing, in my opinion, for anyone pursuing or working in scientific and mathematical fields is a curious mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what if is, is the driving question to so much that we do? And I think you're right. It, it is it is helpful to be able to imagine this future so that you can execute it and bring it to life. And for me, Okay, so I have terrible motion sickness. I am never going to be an astronaut, but it is helpful in my daily life to think about what it would be like to live on the Gateway Space Station in microgravity in a deep space environment for a two week period with only one other fellow crew member, for example. Like being able to picture that so clearly in your mind helps you to bring it to life. Mm-hmm. That was really beautiful. And- oh, thank you. Uh, The last question I have for you, kind of broad and maybe cheesy, but as someone who works with such big budgets and such amazing people, and you know, you being like an inspirational female leader that I even look up to, how do you define success? All right, I'm going to get real personal with you here. Um, As you can see on the video here, I am, I am blushing pretty significant significantly today. I don't know if that's because I've been under the weather this week, but it's something that I've dealt with my entire life and that I have always been ashamed of, to be honest with you. But I am in this moment defining success in that I have been able to stay connected with you. I have been able to answer your questions from my heart and from my head without a a trigger of a fight or flight response, knowing, seeing in the camera that I am turning red. That for me is very much a significant successful moment and something that I've been trying to celebrate every time I see it happening, that I'm able to just get past it. Just keep going. No one's going to judge you because you're blushing, right? So, but you know, here I am, I've achieved quite a bit in my career so far. I'm almost 40 years old and I think it's important for women uh, in leadership positions to acknowledge that even when you achieved your bar of success, however you measure that, there is still a tendency for negative self-talk. And you have to confront that and work on it every single day. And I think it's important for us all to acknowledge that occurs and it's a challenge and something you have to work at. If it helps, the podcast is 
uh, video free. So okay. I don't have to believe you when they say you're flush, I would say you look very beautiful and very normal. Uh, but thank you for sharing such a, such an intimate story. I think it really is important. Uh, and I think a great takeaway for our listeners that success is really personal. And I really love that you kept us grounded with your piece of advice. And I will definitely be taking that forward. Preparing to interview Emma, who has not only led NASA headquarters' $20 billion budget formulation process, but helped implement history-worthy space policy that will protect both this generation and the innumerable ones to come, had me more nervous than when I performed for 15,000 people. I hope this episode inspires our listeners who've struggled to transform their passions into a career. Emma's dream of working in astronomy wasn't realized by becoming a NASA astronaut or rocket scientist. Instead, she forged her own path by imagining ways to imbue her strengths into the field of astronomy and became an irreplaceable team member of NASA. For me, litigation has become my alternative to performing. The court stage and common law repertoire allows me to still pursue what I love and also help those around me. Does space exploration strike you with awe? Or its infinite possibilities instill you with wonder? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, and visit launch2.site for this episode transcript. Join us next time for more unique insights on Launch2 Soundbites.